Danny. Yeah, there we go. Um, wow. I uh, was thinking, I don't know if y'all connected a theme like I did during all the worship, um, but I want to identify that really quickly. Um, and that, that theme is security, which I think is what we've been looking at in all of 1 John. And so we're coming to this last message here, um, and I think this message is uh, designed by John to, to hit those highlights. It's almost like a, he, he works back through the entire letter. Um, so I uh, want to begin with prayer and then a couple of remarks before we get into the message this morning. So let's, let's bow together. Heavenly Father, it's so good to be here in this place together with your, your people, um, Lord, and I don't know what's going on in every person's life uh, at this moment in the season maybe, uh, but Lord, I, I know that you have providentially brought every one of us to this place and this time, and you have a design uh, in this moment to speak to our, our hearts and our minds so that we would understand the hope of the gospel the meaning of security, uh, even if we just sang in last song, that hope would be ours because fear is displaced because of Jesus Christ, and that we would know that Christ is ours forevermore. So, Father, uh, I pray that you'd help me to, to communicate clearly. Um, I pray that the, beyond that, though, Lord, your spirit would just simply move. Uh, take the words of Scripture and the truth of it and speak to us so that we are transformed by the power of the Word uh, through the Spirit's moving. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to introduce myself. I'm Matt Warren. I'm one of the elders here. Uh, Michael got to introduce himself earlier. And uh, you could, I would ask that you do this for us today. Um, Don is out of town. I think he and his family are on vacation. Um, and somebody make sure to tell Don I said this. He's like vacationed a couple times already. This, well, where, where's Don? Shay's here. Where's Don? He said he was on vacation. What, say it, hey, you, you don't speak loud enough for me to ever hear. Okay, so he personally is on a vacation with Oliver. So to, to give him this still grief-worthy, he's vacationing more than anybody I know this summer. <laughs> Shay's like, nah. he is though. You're jealous too, aren't you, Shay? Yeah, I get it. Um, so, so, so give him some grief. Also pray that he uh, catches some good fish, especially for Oliver. Um, there's nothing like fishing with your son. I remember my dad doing that with me and, and my brothers, or my brothers and me. That would be better grammar. Is that right? Do y'all care? I don't care. Um, so this final message on 1 John, I uh, have titled this Final Thoughts to Ensure Confidence. Final Thoughts to Ensure Confidence. Um, if you're coming into this message at this point, you're, you know, you're new or maybe you've been missing a couple. Um, I shared this last week that oftentimes I feel like John is very repetitive in this series, but I think he's repetitive for a couple of reasons. One is because my tendency is to be forgetful. Two, I think it's that reminder to help us also like really, not just because of forgetfulness, but to understand the importance of the message so that, that it would really become ingrained in who we are. And so I think it's also important for us as believers uh, because I think that one of the things that we can often do in our Christian life is get so inward focused in church life that we forget about the lost, that, that we become such a place for, as a hospital for saints that we forget to 
call in the lost that, that need to be reminded of the gospel. And I know that's part of what Coldstream Christian Camp is about. Um, they want to share the gospel with students. Um, I think that's something that we as a church need to become better at, if I'm being very honest. Um, and, and I know that uh, that part of us remembering where we were before Christ is important. So I think that John helps us remember our own need, and, our own, and as we uh, revisit our own confidence, it reminds us of what others need. And so it encourages us to, to reach out and draw them. So this morning, we're going to look at basically three things. So if you're taking notes, you can kind of bullet these things, give a little bit of space. Juliana, I always pick on you because I know you're an avid note taker. I so appreciate it. It's going to serve you one day well. Okay, is it already doing that. I get to, some, there's been occasions I've reviewed her notes and I'm like, okay, I communicated all right. So thanks for that, sweetie. So spread them out. Um, the first one is that we're going to look at is the test. John has consistently talked about how we can test our faith to make sure that it is sound, that, that we have a right relationship with Christ. The second one is the testimony. And so Mason, I thought it was interesting how you talked about, I can't remember his name, Nan. Horatio. G. Stafford. Spafford. You don't have it written down up here. But that, his testimony of his faith. So I, that just rang to me this morning about the, the whole idea of his testimony um, as, as he lost his family and is still trusted the Lord. And then the third is this, that we have a trust or the trust with, with which we operate in our relationship with God. So those three things are going to be the big bullet points. So I'm going to do something a little differently this morning. Uh, normally I read the entire text, but this is going to be 20 verses, and I, I feel like we might lose a little bit of the context, so I'm going to break this in to, to three sections as we read this this morning. So 1 John chapter 5, if you take your Bibles, we're going to read verses 1 through 5 to begin with. So you there already? I don't hear pages flipping, so maybe you're already there. Okay, good. 1 John 5, verses 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So as we're looking at this first idea of the test, what John is, is getting at or emphasizing is that we, every one of us, needs to evaluate our relationship with God, considering where we are in terms of our salvation. So, uh, uh, John here, if I'm kind of, we could spend a lot of time breaking down these verses, honestly, and teaching a lot of things. So, I've tried to, what I typically do is encapsulate a couple big thoughts. So, the three big key thoughts that, that I think John looks at here are three qualities, and they're followed by a promise as we evaluate our salvation and where that is. So, three qualities followed by a promise. So, the first quality is this, to know that we are born of God. He says that really clearly, that we would know that we are born of God. What does it mean to be born of God? I think it's important for us to go back and look at John chapter 3. Um, it's one of those 
famous passages. Um, I, I personally love this passage, especially when sharing with people uh, what, what it means to be saved because it's, first of all, a clear uh, uh, teaching by Jesus himself in relationship with Nicodemus, one who comes to, uh, to Christ wanting to understand why Jesus is a good teacher and, and what, what his teaching is ultimately about. And Jesus breaks down what salvation really consists of. So when we think about John 3 in this account, here's the first thing that we need to, to recognize. Look at verse 6. We're not going to read all of John 3. I want to highlight a couple things. Verses 6 and 7, this is Jesus speaking. He says, um, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So one of the first things that we need to recognize about the quality of salvation and being born again is that it is a work of the Spirit, that the Spirit of God moves within every one of us. Because we could go through a bunch of Scripture uh, and talk about how our hearts are wicked, desperately wicked, how there's none of us that seeks righteousness, no, not one. Uh, we, we are not those like wired in, in the, uh, our sinful natures to pursue God. So it has to be a work of the Spirit that draws us to the message and hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when the Spirit is working, we may not even know those things. I bet if you went back and, and looked at your own salvation history, you'd probably go, oh, looking back, I can see how God worked this detail and this detail, and he orchestrated these kind of circumstances, and he placed these key people in my life to begin to share the gospel with me. And for me, I know that originally, like, I, I was a, a collegiate. Most of y'all know my testimony, but I remember um, being in sin, and my youth pastor, we, we sat in a pizza hut on East Brainerd Road uh, in the middle of my sophomore year, and he confronted me about my sin, and I flat out lied to, to Mike Simonson. I just told him up and down, no, 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 no. And he knew. God had given him a sense about where I was spiritually. But Mike was patient. And it was Mike, and it was my dad, and it was my mom. It was a college roommate. I could go list off five to seven people that were influential in my life of being patient with me, but holding the boundaries of truth and, and sharing the gospel message with me. So ultimately, as the Spirit was beginning to move in that season of my life, there were final breaking points in that, like, it was probably a six-month season overall where the Lord began conviction, and then I relented to that conviction. So you can, you can probably experience those same things or recognize those same things in your life. So, um, so it's, a, it's a work of the Spirit. Second, it requires transformation. Um, when we think about the gospel, the gospel is about us being enlightened to our sins right? If we don't understand our sin and the desperate state that we're in, the gospel can't really have an effect because ultimately what we're doing is we're still walking in pride and self-sufficiency. So I, I was thinking about this, and, and I think a lot of times we can actually make the gospel really difficult to understand, especially, and the gospel shouldn't be difficult, should it? It, it should be one of the most simple truths that even a child can understand. So when we think about it, it's the work of God's Spirit, what's He do? He convicts us of our sin. I think that's a, I, I know, biblically, that's a requirement. Because once we're convicted of our sin and our own self-reliance, 
for our salvation or for our own uh, worth or for our own merit of righteousness, we need to recognize that that is not enough. And once we have our sin exposed by the light of the gospel and Jesus' righteousness, what we then recognize is God's grace impacting us. That it's not our own work that saves us, but it's a result of God's grace. And then what we do is realizing we're sinners in need of God's grace, we surrender to His Lordship. And for me, I, I know when I was that 20-year-old, on it's not my anniversary of salvation, it's not too far from now. And by the way, if you don't remember exactly the date that you were saved or what you prayed exactly, that, that's okay. Just because I do, that, that doesn't, that's not the standard, okay? Um, but I remember on July 17th as a 20-year-old, um, I got down on my knees and I, I said to the Lord, I know that my sin is what puts you on the cross. That's, that you paid the penalty for my sin. I, don't, I know it's for other people, but it's mine in particular. And, and I'm responsible for my sin putting you on the cross, Jesus. And I want to be saved. And I want to give you my life. I surrender my life to you because I've made a mess of it. And I need you to be the Lord of my life. And that was about the extent of my prayer. Um, it wasn't anything magical that happened after that, but I, for the first time in forever that I knew, there was a peace that overcame me. And little by little, the fruit of the, the Spirit at work in me began to give evidence. And my dad and I were in conflict. We actually like, had an argument about my salvation because he thought I was just trying to band-aid our relationship and like, use that as some kind of fix to it. And I just said to him, you know, when we, he confronted me, I, I said, Dad, you're just going to have to watch. And about two weeks later, my dad came back to me and said, hey, I apologize for my attitude with you. You're different. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> I know, because Christ is my Savior. <laughs> you know, and it, it wasn't because of me. It was Christ in me, okay? It, it was the transformation that took place because I surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. And let me say this. At that point, it was not a perfect surrender. Nor this 33 years later is it a perfect surrender, I am being shaped every day, being sanctified by the work of the Spirit as I study God's Word and continue to surrender to the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. I love this. Make, if, you're, if you're in John 3 still, I want you to read this verse with me because I think this is an incredible part of this passage. <clears throat> Jesus says, But whoever does what is true comes to light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Isn't that a cool passage where Jesus talks about this salvation, but it's not us doing it. It's that God is carrying it out in and through us because we have surrendered. That's, that's the work of his grace. And so last week, you might remember this. So I, I, and this will be, bring us to the second quality here. Um, so the first quality is seeing the Spirit at work. The second quality is this, that when we... Uh, come to Christ, that, and we'll go back to 1 John and capture this, but we will love His commands and keep His commands, okay? And, and that's because of John 3.21, it like relates to that, that, that God is at work in us. You'll remember last week I, I mentioned this little phrase, that we possess a divine disposition, okay? A divine disposition. What that means is we're becoming more and more like Christ in everything that we do. That is the evidence of the light of the gospel taking root and shape in us. So that, like, you'll get this imagery, I think. Think about a tree or a vine. 
that's rooted in the ground, what it's rooted in, the fruit then takes flavor from even the roots and the, the soil. So how we're rooted in Christ, that divine disposition, begins to bear fruit in, how, in the evidence of our life. And so I would hope that, that we would see Christ becoming more and more of a priority in our lives, that every day, in every moment, every attitude, every action, we reflect Him more and more because we love Him and we want to keep His commands. And I love what John says in 1 John, those commands are not burdensome. I mean, you've, you've probably been around those people that say, I just, I just find the commands of God burdensome. I would say that if that's their attitude, they're probably not a believer because loving God and loving people as God loves Him is not a burden. It's a joy because that reflects the work of Christ in us. So as we evaluate, remember the context of the entire letter, our confidence and our assurance in Christ, as we evaluate that, it ought to be rooted and grounded in those truths about who we are and how we reflect Him. So now, I actually... I meant, let me go back, because I, I want to make sure I get this right. The first quality is the work of the Spirit. The second quality is it re- requires transformation. And then the third is that we love God and keep His commands. Now, here's the, the, the cool thing about this, because I think often John gives us like this doctrinal overview, and I'm having to give a big, broad brushstroke this morning, but every time he does that, he's also emphasizing a practical outcome. And so what is the practical outcome? Let's go back to 1 John now. In verse 4, we read, verses actually 4 and 5, we read this. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So when we are confident, when we have assurance of our salvation, when we've been born again and the the fruit of that birth in Christ by the work of the Spirit begins to bear evidence in our lives, the promise is this, victory. I, I don't know about you, but we all are desperate for victory. And I want to emphasize a couple things. First of all, it is impossible to have either godly love or obedience without belief in Christ. And what does it mean to believe that Jesus is the Christ? I think this is one of those doctrinal truths that, that John emphasized, and we're going to look at this, but it's that He is the Son of God. So that He is he's looking at His both incarnation and His divine person in, as we've seen earlier in the letter. So we recognize that truth, and we, uh, we recognize that it is uh, godly love and obedience through a belief in Christ that is producing this. Now, here's the interesting thing. As I was thinking about that, a lot of times, I think that people apart from Christ, but maybe they've gotten involved in church life, or maybe they know enough ha, or have enough morality that they will make effort or, or pour into energy in their life um, to, to in such a way that they will try to look moral and righteous in every way, but it's not godly righteousness. It, it's not based on Christ. And it's a- actually a false righteousness. Because only through being born, or only by being born again, by grace through faith, can we possess true godly righteousness. Because it can't be of ourselves. But those people that think that they can do it on their own, they can make it look like they have godly righteousness. It, it's just false. It's, it's, a, it's built on a false foundation. 
And so they will turn their hearts to things that look like godly Christian things. But the truth is, it's based on their own efforts and their own energy instead of the work of Christ by the Word and the Spirit in and through them. And that's something we need to make sure that we identify. That's why I think that John so wisely identifies the need to be born again so that we understand that victory, it only comes because of Christ in us. It can't come because of any effort that we make on our own. So those, those folks that think that they can uh, build it up according to their own means, what they're actually doing is they're, they're basing it on a, a false premise, and it leaves them destitute and in chaos, even though they don't realize it. And so they'll look at those things, and it will uh, prevent them from evaluating their faith in actuality, and it's confusing. And that's why we want to go back to the core of the gospel, that it is by grace through faith that we are saved. Because if we miss that, that it's not by our own works, and all this is Ephesians 2, 8, 9, okay? And we can even, like, lean into 10 a little bit. Um, that those things are, the, it's not enough for them to, to think those things. So let's look at now the second um, aspect of, of this that, that John's teaching in verses 6 through 12, okay? Verses 6 through 12, let's read that together and talk about the testimony of our faith. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that He has borne concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and, that, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Now, before I get into this, um, I'm going to call somebody out, Nathan Karma. okay, I'm thinking about you this morning and thinking, okay, I'm going to teach this section. I want to hear your thoughts after the message, okay? So Nathan is um, in RTS in Charlotte, um, working on his Masters of Divinity, or is it M? Okay, it is MDiv. Okay. Um, Tyler, I might want to hear yours too as a, uh, as a pastor, okay? Um, so this is actually, as I started looking through this, I was like, man, this is actually a complex passage dealing with these three witnesses, okay, which are the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And there's a lot of different views that could be taken. And so as I was pouring over this, I basically came to a, a conclusion that I'm going to give you in a, a moment. So the question would be, why three witnesses? Why does John go, we need these three witnesses to understand the, the message of the gospel and the hope, and how do these three provide assurance for us, if that's like the end goal for him in the message? So as I was studying, this uh, teaching from the Old Testament came back to me. So if you remember in Deuteronomy chapter 17, 6, and 7, and Deuteronomy 19, 15, does anybody have those passages memorized? Nobody? You, you do, Gina. You, okay, can you quote them for us? You don't want to impress us. Okay, thanks. <laughs> 
I don't have them memorized either, okay? Don't worry. I wouldn't have remembered the context had I not been reading in, in a commentary and gone back and looked at these things. But here's what's happening in Deuteronomy. Remember, Deuteronomy is where we get the, the law given to the Israelites as their, um, you know, de- their nation is developing and God's blessing them with the relationship that He has with them. And so here's the point of these couple passages as God is giving them the law. It has to do with how many witnesses are required when someone is in trial and there's a, a testimonial that is being given. Do you remember how many witnesses must be present? It says two or three, okay? So obviously minimum of two because why? If there's only one witness, I, I could be, you know, could, could get in relationship with somebody and just say, hey, we're going to scheme together. But two witnesses begins to minimize that opportunity for deceit to happen when a, a trial is incurred. When with there's three, it doesn't, what? It, it founds it in an even better light, right? That the testimony is true based on those three witnesses. So I think here what John's doing, he's giving us this understanding that, that there are at least these three witnesses given forth. And so this understanding of the gospel message is sure based on these three witnesses. So the three witnesses, therefore, are the spirit, the water, and the blood. Okay, did, did y'all follow that in the, the, the text? Okay, good. So here's the question then. What is the meaning of those three witnesses? Why the Spirit, why the water, and why the blood? What do they they have to to relate to? So this is where there's all these multiple views that that this could be. So here's what, as I wrestled through, and this is my conclusion on this, because I'm I'm not going to give you all the the different views. I think this is a sound one, um, and I don't think it's going to change necessarily a doctrinal stance on anything, so that's why I'm just going to give you the, the, the bottom line one that I believe. So we know contextually John is writing to the church and he's trying to teach the church how to stand against the heretics, those that were undermining the truth of who Christ is um, as far as Scripture communicates, specifically dealing with the Gnostics and then later heresies that were coming that were taking Christ's divinity and humanity into exception. Now, framing that in the context, here's what I think uh, he's doing. One, I think with the idea of the Spirit, it's the witness of God that he points to in the text. Do you remember that? Let's go look at this really quick. Verse, um, verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. So, you get this idea that what, what John is recognizing is that eternal life in Jesus is the testimony that God is the one who gave him. I think it does point back to even these ideas of John 3 that we've looked at this morning. But ultimately, what he's saying is the Spirit is the one who reflects God's testimony. Why would the Spirit be the one that tes- uh, gives that testimony? Because the Spirit is responsible as a member of the Godhead and responsible uh, for the conception of Jesus himself. So it points to the divine nature of Jesus in that moment. Does that make sense? So then you have the, the water. Why the water? Well, when Jesus is conceived, we know from John 3 what was the birth that Jesus was emphasizing, one of the types of birth that Jesus was emphasizing with Nicodemus. It was the birth of water, the physical birth, when the woman's water breaks right before the, the birth uh, begins. And so I think that is part of that pointing to the physical birth of Jesus himself. So conceived of the Holy Spirit, born in the flesh, 
But then, why the blood? I think it does a couple things in this third witness, that the blood points to the crucifixion itself, where Jesus would be uh, completing the gospel in one sense. Obviously, the resurrection is part of that too. But the blood emphasizes the ongoing life of Jesus and his sacrifice. So the witness is those three elements that point to Jesus' divinity, humanity, and and more than that, just the purpose of his sacrifice being for us as a man. Not in some like weird sense that a lot of the early heresies were um, focusing on on Christ. So, so I think that's a simple uh, way to look at that. So um, that has to do with the testimony. And so then this is why this testimony about Jesus in this sense, okay? Because the outcome is this. And look at, look at verse 12 again. I think this makes it uh, simple. Because remember, what John wants us to gain is assurance, So verse 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. He wants us to know, he wants his readers to know that assurance comes through knowing Jesus Christ. Well, I I thought of this, and it's been a long time since I came across this phrase, but it's, it's interesting. This knowing that we have eternal life, that is an internal assurance. So there's this great Latin phrase, and it means, I'm going to give you the phrase, but I'm going to give you the meaning of it first. It's the inner testament or testimony of the Holy Spirit, the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit. So the reformers termed it like this, testimonium internum spiritus sancti, okay? It's been a long time since I read that phrase, and I'll repeat it. Is anybody trying to write the Latin down? Gina, Nathan, do you remember this phrase? Kind of? Okay, good. I'm going to give it to, to everybody again. Testimonium internum spiritus sancti. Okay, that's just fun for all you, you geeks out there that like the, the Latin and stuff, like some of us. So, lastly, let's look at the idea of the trust. Verses 13 through 21. Verses 13 through 21. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. You hear this again and again, this idea of know that you have eternal life, assurance, be assured, be confident of your faith. Verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who, has been, who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So confidence. This this last idea of the trust is about us as believers having a deep confidence in God. And I think this is where... uh, John is, is moving from this practical idea, I'm, I'm sorry, from this doctrinal idea to, to the practical. Um, and and I'm, I actually want to go back and give you a thought. Um, I was 
reading this morning, just trying to prepare for our elder and deacons meeting this afternoon. And um, one of the things that I came across, and I thought, man, this is just a great statement. Um, we're reading a book called The Trellis and the Vine. And uh, th- there's a statement about uh, training is what he's teaching on this section. But he says this, the heart of training is not to impart skill, okay? The heart of training is not to impart skill, but to impart sound doctrine. I thought, man, that is a, a very lofty, bold statement. But, but I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, that, that we don't need skill, but we need sound doctrine. Because I think when we have sound doctrine, what the Holy Spirit does is then He brings the skills through gifts and through relationships. And so we, we, it's, not, it's not that the writer was saying we don't apply skills or we don't need skills, but if our doctrine is sound, what practice that we engage in and follow with will be right because our doctrine is sound. And so one of those things that we have to have is a sound understanding of our assurance so that when we pray, we pray properly. That's a practical outworking that John is getting at right here. When we're confident and assured of our relationship with Christ, our prayers change, don't they? Now, you guys are looking at me a little strange, so let me break it down for just a moment. When you think about your own prayer life, just like reflect over it really quickly, you know, over the years of, of how long you've been walking in faith, has it been up and down? Mine has, okay? I know this. When it's down, there's reasons. What are typically the reasons? Because I have sin that I'm being casual about. I'm, I'm not walking in obedience and loving well, not, not being maybe disciplined about my quiet time, those kind of things. My prayer life just dips down, and I begin to struggle. It's a great barometer of how I'm doing in other areas. Why? Because when we're walking, when you think about your prayer life being at its best moments, you're typically in the Word, you're in fellowship rightly with people, you're not walking in sin, you're instead repenting of sin and being very sensitive about it. And what that does is it aligns your relationship with Christ and our Heavenly Father properly so that your prayer life is sound and stable. And so I think what John's getting at is when your doctrine and you're recognizing all the things about your life are, are going well and you're aligned properly, your prayer life changes because it you can operate in confidence. So, so let's look at back this. Look back at this really carefully. Look at verses um, four, fourteen and fifteen. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. So, so where does Jesus begin when He taught the disciples about prayer? Not my will, but Yours be done. Right. That's one of the first principles he teaches in the Lord's Prayer, that we would be so aligned to our Heavenly Father that when we pray, it's not being motivated out of, out of selfish desires, which are often leading to sinful things, but instead because we're rightly aligned with Christ, we're surrendered well to the, the leading of the Holy Spirit, that our Father is getting our attention, that we, when we pray, we're aligning with His will. We're asking according to His plans. So, knowing the will of God does what? It provides us confidence in prayer. Because most likely, you're like me, when you're struggling, when you begin to pray, where's your confidence? 
It's out the window, so to speak, right? It's just not present because you know you're not aligned with God rightly. So when we walk and when we are confident, walk with the Lord and walk in confidence, our prayer life changes and it becomes more effective. So increasing intimacy with God that relies upon our dependence of Him and our awareness of our sinfulness is what gives us confidence in our prayer life. That's such an important principle. So the trust also does this. So, so first, it impacts our, our walk with the Lord in prayer. The second is it does this. It helps us to trust other believers. Look at this in verse 16 again. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask God and God will give him life. Isn't that interesting? So if I'm walking with the Lord right and I'm walking in confidence and I see a, a friend walking in sin, my responsibility is to do what? Pray that the Lord will change their heart. And what is the promise there? that the Lord's going to change their heart, that He's going to change their, their way of behavior. I, I, I think I can con- confess this to you as well. I think too often times when I experience that kind of dynamic, I watch a friend going away in sin, my tendency is to go, boundaries, I'm not going to, you know, engage with them. I'm not going to engage in accountability with them. I'm going to distance myself. That's exactly the wrong approach. The approach is to become intimate with them, to hold them accountable, to be praying for them, maybe even praying with them. And I think this goes back to Matthew 18, the principles there, that we go to them. If they don't respond, we take a a witness and we go a third time. And if that doesn't work, we end up before the church saying we're not going to allow sin to exist in people's life. We're going to hold one another accountable to righteous living so that God is honored in all things. It's not out of pride. It's out of humility of of gaining a victory of our own confidence in who Christ is in us and assurance of our own salvation as we're surrendered to His will on an ongoing basis. So it's in our own personal prayer life, and it's in the accountability of relationships in the church. Isn't that good stuff? I mean, John got it right. And then finally, we see this. In verses 18 through 20, we see the transforming power of God. Let's read this again together. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born, uh, who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So, so first of all, when we see this transforming power of God taking place, the first area that we find it working out is protection from the evil one. Folks, I, I think about the early church and the intense period uh, that believers in the era uh, experienced as they were martyred for their faith. How they endured that conflict and that that, uh, challenge to the point of martyrdom where they were killed, willing to die for their faith, was because they knew that the evil one did not have victory. They saw the eternal consequences of of how they lived. They knew that this earth was not their home. I don't think it's any different for us today in one sense. Now, I know that we're, we're in, in America, we don't see a lot of people dying for their faith. But I can assure you of this. If you look around, who has the greatest privileges in our culture, in our society? It's everybody but Christians. And I, I can pick on this one group because you guys know we love soccer. MLS soccer, they emphasize every group on the face of the planet and I'm, I'm exaggerating there, 
but they have LGBTQ month where they emphasize that, change stuff on their jerseys. They have, what, what's the most recent one? It was oh, um, Juneteenth stuff. Um, they don't have faith nights. I mean, I'm just saying. Now, do I expect them to ever have a faith night, if I'm being honest? No. Be- because it, it, it's just not going to happen. And, and I think there's a lot of reasons and dynamics for that. But I don't think that there's going to be equality given to us. Does that mean we shouldn't push to that? Not necessarily. I, I think we can try to be advocates for those things. But it also reminds me just very quickly how we are not walking on e- equal ground or footing. And that's okay. You say, well, well how is that okay? We, we have a right. Listen. Let me say this, this world is not our home. My, my rights don't exist here. The promise is struggle. And I'm okay with the struggle because what I know is the end of the struggle is character through my perseverance in the struggle. And that character produces what, ultimately? Hope. And hope is not about this earthly place. Hope is about the kingdom of Christ. And so I'm okay saying this is just a reminder when I go to those events and, and go, why is there not a faith night or whatever? It's a reminder, this is not my home. I'm really glad in some ways that I don't have a faith night because that reminder is good for me to recognize that it is an eternal victory, not a temporal victory. And we need to live that way, folks. It, it needs to provide us a greater hope than what is just in this moment. Too many people focus just on this moment rather than the kingdom promises. Let us be satisfied with what is eternal, not with what's temporal. So so that's part of this, that how we endure that is this. Ultimately, we know we're protected from the evil one. I don't have to have a fate night. It's okay. I'm protected from the evil one. I don't have to worry about enduring the things of this life. I am protected from the evil one. And it may not be a temporal protection, but it is an eternal protection. I need that. I need that every moment of every day. That thought needs to sustain me. So the second one, so as we think about trusting God's power, the second one is that we would uh, recognize that there's a protection from the world. Look at verse 19. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Well, if the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, where's our hope? Well, we don't. It's what is in front of this. We know that we are from God. We, we know that God is ours, that Christ is mine forevermore. It's what we sang this morning. See, that, that I am in Him and He is in me, and that the Spirit dwells me and seals me until the day of redemption. I am okay. This world cannot overcome me. But that means this, practically too. I can't get so distracted by the things of the world that they are what appeal to me ultimately. I need to be so intently focused on the things of Christ, that those things are what satisfy me. So that's the second part of the the transforming power of God. The third is this. Let's look at verse 20. It is understanding that the believer is confident in their knowledge of Jesus. In verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. Ooh. 
It's one of those doxology moments, right, in that sense. I know it's not a true doxology, but it is. Praise be to Jesus, I am in Him. Praise be to Jesus that He is the truth, that, that we are confident in our knowledge of Jesus. And let me say that, or say this, it is not just a mental ascent. I love this word, understanding. That, that, that we wouldn't just know facts, but our intimacy, the ongoing daily relationship, our understanding increasing of wisdom and satisfaction in Christ would rise up within us. And our understanding of Him would be at the core of everything that we are. That's where our confidence lies. So again, put this all like kind of back in full context. John is addressing these heresies that, that, that are compromising the truth of who Jesus is. And what's he laying back on is the truth of Jesus. The truth of Jesus. We've got to be people of the, the Scriptures and know Jesus well so that our doctrine is what trains us, that, 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 that we are training in that doctrine so that we are founded rightly upon the hope of the gospel. Good stuff, isn't it? So here's the, the practical outcome today. Like practical question I would leave you with. Where's your confidence? Where's your hope? How, how are you doing in the growth and the maturity of your understanding of Jesus every day? See, I, I would venture this, that most of us go, yeah, we're pretty good. We're pretty good. Can I encourage you with this? John spent five chapters repeating himself over and over again. Don't walk out thinking, yeah, I'm good, and just it's status quo. I would encourage you really wrestle with that. And, and if you can, like, take the fine-tooth comb through the, the checkpoints of your life. Because he's done that again and again. He continues to go back to the same test. He can, continues to go back to the same doctrinal truths so that we would have that fine-tooth comb like search our hearts and our minds so that when we get to that one point where there's the tangle, we go, oh, that's the tangle point that I need to pick at to make sure that I get it cleaned up and cleaned out so that I find greater satisfaction. Does that make sense, that imagery? so that we're not easily satisfied and we're actually left kind of lackluster. Because if we are easily satisfied, we won't have the joy that is promised to us, which is where he began. If you go back and remember, he talked about one of the tests being our joy in the Lord. And instead, we won't have, if we leave that, that stuff in there, those tangles in our faith life, we, we won't have the assurance that He desires for us to have. And if we don't have assurance, then I don't think we have confidence. And if we don't have confidence, then we don't walk in right accountability with one another. We don't pray well for one another, for ourselves. We don't pray well for the lost. And we don't see the world influenced for the eternal sake of the gospel, not just the temporal. Does, does that make sense? So it's, it's not a small thing. Is like the most profound thing that we consider. So I would leave you the, with this last thought, and we're going to pray. If there's somebody in here today, and you're not confident, you're not assured about your place with the Lord, if you're resting on things of your own doing and, and thinking, well, I can act righteous and I can pretend to be righteous, but it's founded on your own thoughts and your own systems instead of the righteousness of Christ, 
Can I encourage you? The gospel is the only hope. To come to Christ to say, I know that by grace, Christ endured my penalty on the cross so that he would pay my sin, that I might confess him as Lord and Savior, having repented of my sin and trusting in him for my salvation. It's simple. It's simple. But we want to counsel you about that. Don't leave this building today. If you know that you need Jesus Christ as your Savior and you're not confident of your faith without getting counsel from somebody, you can talk to me. And if you go, Matt, you're intimidating. I don't want to talk to you. I totally get that, okay? I, I will pass you on to somebody else that you can connect with better than me. That's, that's totally cool. But I want to make sure that you know and are confident and assured of your salvation before leaving today. So let's do this. Let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we close this service today, this is my simple prayer and our, our prayer of response, Lord, that we would take just a minute individually and personally to, to let your spirit move through the thoughts in this message and take that, those thoughts as a fine-tooth comb in our lives. And if there's a place where we're uh, not confessing sin or we've been harboring bitterness towards somebody, maybe we've not been praying rightly or in, in, uh, doing the other things. Lord, I could go through all those things again, but I'm just going to trust your spirit. Lord, but we want to take a minute and just do inventory. So I ask, Lord, that in this moment, your spirit would move in us. Father, we know that Jesus is truth. We thank you that your spirit enlightens us to the truth through the Word of God. Father, we thank you that through Jesus' work and the Spirit's work, we have the opportunity to come to you by grace through faith. Lord, it is not any work of our own, but the gospel message is a message of hope and assurance, and we don't have to doubt, and we don't have to waver. So, Lord, where we do doubt and waver, and where our confidence may feel um, uncertain, Lord, I pray that you, you would convict us and convince us, and that the truth of Jesus would bring hope and healing. Father, may it also, uh, may the Word and your Spirit move so that we would also be convicted of sin and not satisfied through cheap salvation, but your, spirit, your Word tells us that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And I think that's what John is getting at in this book. So, Lord, I am so thankful that we've been able to, to work through this book over the last several months and uh, just to give these, these careful thoughts uh, attention. And, Lord, I pray that above all, we would be a church that walks in assurance and confidence both inwardly as individuals and then outwardly together as a body and in our witness to a world that is desperate for Jesus. So, Father, this morning, I thank you for our worship. I thank you that you are faithful to us. And as we go forward from this point through the rest of our week, I pray that you would empower us, uh, that you would continue to work in us. Lord, help us to see people with your eyes, to, to love you and love them well, so that Jesus is magnified. And we pray these things in his name and for his sake. Amen.